When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, um, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. First of all, our, our hearts go out to all those affected by the fires out here, and uh, many thanks for the hard work of all the first responders. Um, information on our show today is available on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com, including a link to how you can help those affected by the fires. Um, we're continuing our Miami Book Fair series, and today we have with us um, Rumana Ahmed, and she is one of 18 former Obama administration of officials who've contributed to a new book called West Wingers, stories from the dream chasers, change makers, and the hope creators inside the Obama White House. And Rumana had um, actually worked in the White House Office of Presidential Correspondence before eventually working in the Office of Public Engagement and then the as an advisor to the National Security Council, where she stayed until early in the Trump administration, and we'll talk about that later. But Ramona, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you so much, Bennett, for having me on the show. Um, really, in, really excited to have you and interested about this book. So, uh, of the um, dream chasers, change makers, and hope creators, which category are you? I think, um, you know, I think I've definitely fallen into each of those categories. Um, What led me to the White House was kind of uh, being a dream chaser and wanting to see change happen. Um, And getting to witness that firsthand at the White House, I think, is what kept me there. In terms of hope creators, um, I think everyone who contributed a chapter in the book We've kind of experienced the intersection of all those three categories, and what kept us going there every single day was being able to share our own personal experiences um, with others to empower others and actually feed off of what people were doing across the country to be themselves a change maker and, and hope creator. So I would say all three of them. And, and how did this book come about? How was it that you um, it, it got started, and how were you brought into it? Yeah, so I know uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but uh, I was actually under the Trump administration, and I lasted there for eight days. But um, after I left, I wrote an article in The Atlantic, and um, the article actually ended up becoming the 23rd most read online article of 2017. But um, as a result of that, I had a few book agents reach out. Um, I didn't feel necessarily ready to write my own book, and that's when one of my colleagues, Gautam Raghavan, who's the editor-in-chief of the book, uh, approached me and said, you know, would you like to contribute a chapter um, to this book? And our intent behind it is to really encourage um, people from across communities to not lose hope in their government, given what's going on right now, and hopefully to reach more young people to encourage them to pursue careers in government. Um, and that was something that really resonated with me, given my own personal background of how I ended up at the White House. But um, Gautam and I actually worked together as well during our time in the Office of Public Engagement. So uh, there was a personal relationship there as well. So wh- I guess why don't we start at the beginning, before we get to the Atlantic yeah. article. Um, you, uh, you're, you grew up in Maryland, 
and you're you're Muslim yep, American, Bangladeshi American. Yes, Bangladeshi. So uh, my parents actually, um, you know, came to the U.S. in 1978, and actually, I've been in Maryland, born and raised in Maryland. I have my almost uh, close to 200 relatives all there in Maryland. Where in Maryland? Um, I actually ended up going to in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland. Okay. Yeah. So we have our whole clan there. Um, so, you know, Maryland has always been home for me. And I ended up going to George Washington University for my undergraduate, where I studied international affairs um, with a concentration in development and economics. Um, and honestly, entrepreneurship and innovation, uh, especially for women and, and young girls, um, has always been a focus area for me, an interest area for me. Uh, and it wasn't actually, it was actually in my uh, junior year in college that I applied for the White House internship. Um, however, before even getting there, um, you know, 9-11, I think, was a major shift in my life. Uh, I was a, in, I was actually 11 years old at the time okay. when 9-11 happened. Um, and at that time, I also had just started covering my hair for the first time. Uh, and that was a very big personal choice in my family. Um, it wasn't ever forced. It was encouraged to try out. Um, but for me, it was a personal choice that I made. And um, I actually was homeschooling at that time. I was being homeschooled for two years. Um, and it was actually the year after 9-11 that I re-entered into public school um, but one of the key memories that I have, and actually, as I've been talking about this book, I've been sharing this story that I felt like I met my government for the first time when I um, was 12 years old, the summer after coming back from vacation. It was my single mother and her three kids. Um, and we were in customs, and all of a sudden, everybody around us just went silent and was just looking at us. And when we turned around, there was like three you know, men with assault rifles and TSA, and they just kind of surrounded us and said, you know, you guys need to come with us. And um, they escorted us to an interrogation room, and here my mother was just freaking out. Um, it happened, it turned out that they were looking for a terrorist, a male terrorist, um, who had a similar name to my mother. Um, unfortunately, the fact that she was a female and that the names were, in fact, slightly different didn't matter. Um, but it was a terrifying experience, and um, being 12 years old and sitting in an interrogation room um, was uh, definitely had an impact on me. And, and for me, I always say, like, I didn't trust my government from that day, and I was very frustrated. Um, and just everything beyond that, you know, of course, I faced a lot of discrimination. My own family did, you know, whether it was going shopping at a store or, you know, you're stopped at a red light and the car next to you is cursing you out and telling you to go back to your country or calling you a terrorist. Um, so it kind of became normal, um, unfortunately. And it was actually while I was in high school, um, you know, at a young age I did face discrimination and bullying, but it was actually a major shifting point for me as well. And I know I talk about this in the in the book of the moment right. where, you know, a student tried to push me down the stairs and I just kind of turned around and pushed back and it wasn't to kind of get equal, you know, revenge or anything, but it was more of, you know, just being exhausted. Um, that's the only word I can think of is exhausted, where you feel like your identity and everything that you are, um, that someone is trying to rob you of all that you right. are. And um, that became a big point um, when I started to actually be more open about sharing my perspectives and sharing my beliefs and who I am, um, because I never ever felt that my faith or my identity or the way that I looked was in conflict or contrast to being American. Um, being American is all I know to be. Um, did you have so any anyways, family members? Mm -hmm. Did you have any family members um, who settled like in Canada or the UK or other places who had different experiences? Um, you know what? I most of my family is all in Maryland, and then the other half is in Bangladesh. I have a few in New York, um, and then a few in Australia. Folks in New York, actually one of them I know, like she stopped covering her hair. Um, but, you know, it, it was kind of a hit or miss. Like in New York, of course, like the hate crimes were very high at that time. Right, because of 9-11, um, yeah. You know, I know for, <laughs> yeah, and I know for her and her family, like they became very careful going out. Um, so immediately after 9-11, there was a lot of caution. I would say like maybe three, four years later, everything kind of started to cool down a little bit. I mean, I think that's, very relevant. I mean, it, it's relative to where you are within the U.S. So for me sure. in Maryland, like it got a little bit better um, before it kind of hiked back up in 2015 around the campaign. 
And, and oh, yeah. so, which which you which you attribute to Trump? Say that again. Which you attribute to Trump? Yes, absolutely. So, um, actually, in, in 2015, immediately after the announce or the call for a travel ban, which was in December of 2015, um, I've actually made the comparison that the level and and you know level of hate crime that I faced during the campaign, the presidential campaign, was actually a lot worse than what I faced post-9-11, and that's for me personally. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case for others, but in fact, um, two weeks after he called for the travel ban, I actually had a car try to hit me in a parking lot, uh, which was terrifying. Um, and then just a few weeks after that, a gentleman, uh, I mean, a, a guy like followed me out of the metro, just cursing at me and you know, following me into a parking lot and telling me to go back to my country. Um, and I, you know, I kind of thought that I had gotten past this like fear that I felt uh, post 9/11. But you kind of realize it's kind of like PTSD, right? <laughs> it kind of comes right. back. Um, and actually, for probably two to three months after those two incidents, I realized I was being very cautious crossing the street. And you know, when I was at the metro, I wouldn't stand at the edge of the platform, just afraid that well, what if somebody comes and tries to push me? Um, but the other thing that really happened, and this goes into talking about why I chose to write. Um, about the mosque visit uh, and, and why I wrote, to, um, write about this topic in the book is uh, I was actually teaching at my Sunday school at that time and I have no idea how I had the time to do it but I was doing it <laughs> and I was teaching third graders and um, I think that for me was the biggest shift in where I felt I needed to do something. Um, these were third grade kids and when you see how small they are and the level of fear they had, um, some of them were just spaced out and not even paying attention to me in class and some of them were just asking me every class, are we going to get kicked out of this country? Is our family going to get kicked out of the country? Wow. Um, they were truly fearful and it's not just Muslims that were going through this, right? You have DACA kids, you have, you know, immigrants and refugees and, you know, Jewish Americans, like the, the level of hate crimes, everyone is feeling it. The fear was real. And although I remember the feeling of a child at the age of 11, these kids were a lot smaller than I was. And um, it was terrifying for me to see on their faces what fear could look like um, for them. And these are things, and I think oftentimes we're always debating the politics and um, you know, debating the campaign, and we forget about the youngest people around us who are smart enough to actually grasp and understand and are left alone to deal with, like, how do I make sense of this? Right. I mean, it was actually after that that I brought up their stories in a meeting, um, and what had happened is a lot of staffers within the White House were facing discrimination and were fearful. So it wasn't just Muslim Americans, it was kind of everybody. So that, that's when I had a talk with Dennis McDonough, who is the chief of staff, and so he called for a staff meeting for anyone who wanted to kind of share like their concerns. And it was in that meeting, um, it was like maybe 30 of us that all crammed together in his office that um, I shared the stories of, this, of, the, of my students, and he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, can I come and talk to the kids? And I'd love to kind of hear what they're going through. I didn't go into this in the book, but um, a story for <laughs> maybe next time. But uh, he actually came to my mosque, like, you know, after nice. Obama's mosque that he brought his sixth grade son, uh, son with him and talked to the kids and, and heard from them. Um, but anyway, so their stories, and I think what made the mosque, and I talk about this at the mosque visit, and it's not even so much about the mosque visit. It's more of being able to speak to the Muslim American community because post 9-11, it just hadn't ever really happened. You did have um, President Bush at that time. He did go and make a statement. But um, it's like the hate crimes had continued and has been a very big uh you know, concerning and, and tough point in the Muslim American community, and there hadn't just been any major address. Um, and so for me, I walked away with, like, someone needs to say something to these kids, because it's not just us adults that are going through it. It's a whole population. It's not just Muslims. It's Jewish Americans. It's, you know, Latinos. It's anyone who's a DACA student. Um, and that's kind of what drove uh, this whole visit happening and, and really drove the messaging of his speech. Um, and, and so I just to be clear for our listeners, kind of laying out how it all happened. Right. Mm -hmm. So our listeners, you know, you, President Obama went to a mosque in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And yep. That, so yeah. go ahead. 
Um, so actually, he, uh, the reason why we had him go to a mosque, so we had talked about at the very beginning of the administration of him potentially going to a mosque um, to address kind of hate crimes and racism within the Muslim American community. It kind of had never happened because there was a level of concern and caution just because, you know, Obama had wrongly been kind of portrayed as, oh, he might be a Muslim or whatever. Right. Um, so there was a little bit of an optic concern. Um, however, at that moment, and although it happened late, there was like really no more of a perfect timing for him to actually go out and make the statement. So in uh, early 2016, it was actually in February 2016, um, and we literally, after I shared the stories of these kids, we had um, a bunch of Muslim American community leaders come in to be able to hear from them, and all of them came in not as leaders, but literally as parents. Every single person, the only thing that they could talk about is how fearful they were of their children. Um, and that really hit home for a lot of the senior officials, including Valerie Jarrett and Ben Rhodes within the White House. And we had a senior staffers meeting immediately after that, saying like, okay, we need to do something. We need to go out and have Obama say something. Um, and that's when we made the decision of like, all right, well, we want to go to have him go to a mosque and be able to make this address. Uh, and that's where I was assigned to choose kind of like which mosque that he was going to go to. And I chose Baltimore because of the broader context of where it was located. Um, you know, there's so many civil rights challenges happening there. Um, you know, there's a very big Muslim American community that really is on the front lines working on social justice reform, working on, you know, strengthening the city, working on climate change. They're just working on kind of those everyday American stories. And I think that is all was a big part of how Obama worked on any of his messaging and how we put a lot of his speeches together. And it's what I wanted to be a key part of this visit as well is kind of humanizing the stories and the experiences of your everyday American, and in this case of a Muslim American, whether they are a child who, um, you know, is a Girl Scout, and he kind of talks about and mentions all that within his within his speech. Um, but it was a very powerful um, uh, address, and, you know, while he gave his address within the mosque, there was a whole auditorium of almost like 300 kids right next door, and he kind of went afterwards. And when you just saw this image of all these kids, just how excited they were, you are reminded that these kids are just like any other child. Um, and, and, you know, we all should be kind of reassuring them that you belong here and you don't have to choose whether you're Muslim and or American, whether you're Latino or American, whether you're African-American or American. You are both. Um, and you kind of embody all those aspects and don't let anybody take that away from you. And I think the other thing that was so critical about his speech is he really called, and this was so necessary at that moment, is he called on every American, like, it's not okay, it's not enough for us just to be bystanders and to just tweet about how concerned we are and how we stand by all these marginalized communities, but we need to actually take action on it. Um, and just to give the example of, like, when I was on that metro and being cursed out and, you know, verbally attacked, no one stood up for me. Um, and I think that was kind of a really important and necessary, necessary message at that time. And, you know, there's an important point in the speech where you know Obama goes through kind of the the history of, of Muslims in America and and how we all must stand up to bigotry and defend freedom of religion and it's significant because it, I see a parallel. I I grew up in Rhode Island and Rhode Island is home to the first synagogue in the country, Toro Synagogue in Newport, and there's a famous letter from President Washington to the synagogue, assuring them that all faiths are welcome in this new country. And it, it's kind of a landmark letter that, um, you know, it's seen as a, a touchstone of the our commitment to religious liberty. And, you know, the, the Muslim community didn't necessarily have that letter because, you know, they were Muslims at the time of the revolution and they fought in the war, but, you know, they, 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 there wasn't a mosque yet, and so that didn't happen. And this was a kind of a pivotal point where our president was saying to the Muslim community, you know, you are part of us. Mm -hmm. It was actually the first ever major speech given by a president that specifically just addressed the Muslim American community. So it was a very big deal. And I remember just even sitting there hearing him, you know, I think in the course of my life when I was a child, it's like whenever I was discriminated against, I would go to a school counselor or somebody and, and they would always, adults would always say, you know, just ignore them, just ignore them. Um, but it's actually not enough to just ignore them. It is important that, and this was a big part of his message of, you know, it's really important that we kind of proactively reach out to each other um, and 
put aside our differences and find our commonalities. Um, and I think especially relative to even right now of what we need to be doing, I think there's so much like finger pointing happening, right? Like it's, it's the alt-right that's doing this, but it's important not to do that. It is important for us to actually engage with each other, to actually communicate with each other. Um, and, and it is actually through those human interactions, which we don't do enough of as in, anymore because we live online. Um, you know, it is important to have those human interactions to be reminded of that we do have commonalities and there is the importance of human dignity. Um, I agree. That we should I, at least I agree. be... Yeah, you know, um, we're going to talk more about this after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlone okay. Business Report only at webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. It's time once again to get ready for the 5th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th through the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions for the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress. Powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. WebmasterRadio.fm Take your hat off, kick your feet up, and log into the feed. We're here for you 24-7. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and President Obama said, we are one American family. We will rise and fall together. It won't always be easy. There will be times when our worst impulses are given voice, but I believe that ultimately our best voices will win out. And that was a speech at the uh, mosque in Baltimore. And we're talking with Rwana about um, her book, The West Wingers, and her experience um, in bringing that about and also her other experiences with the Obama administration. And so before the break, you were saying how we, we, we need to have more dialogue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I do think, you know, one thing I've been talking a lot about, especially around this book, and I think people are hungry to hear, like, what do we do to address some of the challenges that we're facing right now? Um, And, you know, we have, you know, whole new levels of mobilization happening thanks to social media. But how do we get, you know, push that mobilizing into more organizing and an actual impact. Um, and I do think, you know, there is a level of like kind of going a little old school again, right? And, um, you know, finding ways of reaching across um, aisles and making sure that we're actually trying to listen to each other no matter our differences um, and trying to find those commonalities. But I really do believe that human interaction is something that we are missing out on. Um, I, I look back on my own experiences and throughout high school, what made me open up and be more bold about sharing my perspectives was realizing that some of the people who used to harass me, once I started to actually talk to them and they started listening to me, um, we came to actually respect each other. And and some of the people who used to probably hate me the most in the beginning ended up becoming my very good friends by the end of my senior year. Um, And I think there are so many stories of that across the U.S. Um, And I think it's just important that we think about, okay, well, what are we doing as individuals? Um, And not just getting caught up in all the information that we're being fed and all the news that's constantly changing. Um, And it's hard to grasp, like, what do I focus on? Um, So I think it is important that we figure out, you know, as individuals, what is the role that we can be playing and how do we address 
our own biases. Um, I think that is a very big conversation that is missing, and, and it's kind of subtly within um, this chapter, and I think throughout many of the chapters, that um, there are limitations to how we are thinking about issues. Um, and I think throughout the chapters, you'll see people very openly talk about their own frustrations during the Obama administration of how it's hard to get certain things kind of pushed through. Um, so this I think the book does a really good job of being pretty frank on some of those challenges. And it's been very well received. Um, Joe Biden says it's exceptional. We have so much to learn from these stories. And your story included not just this visit to a mosque, but you were involved in some major landmark achievements of the Obama administration, including um, establishing diplomatic relations with Cuba. What was that like? Yes. Um, I will say it is, uh, I did get to work in three different offices and work on domestic and foreign policy issues, and I will say that this was definitely the most historic, amazing, and surreal um, part of my entire almost six years there. And it was an incredible learning experience. Um, what was so significant about it, well, first of all, just to give a little background, when I first started working at the National Security Council for Ben Rhodes, um, you know, the the negotiations that he was holding was, you know, still pretty top secret. Um, and so it was a little surreal of, like, being there and realizing, like, I can't talk about my job. And, you know, at that time, State Department didn't know about it. Um, but I think the biggest lesson and takeaway of what was so significant is um, it was the first, like, major shift, shift from what was the remnants of Cold War policies. And um, the fact of the matter is we've seen that this whole approach of just punishing a country, um, putting forward all these sanctions, like, sure, while it does hurt the government, it actually hurts the Cuban people more. Um, for me personally, it's the people within countries, within my own country that has mattered the most, like everything that has kept going when I was working at the White House was being able to see the impact that I could have on the American people. And I think at the end of the day, looking at what our past policies have been on Cuba, the people who have suffered the most have been the Cuban people economically, socially, in terms of their empowerment. And um, what I really, what I think was so powerful about this is um, you know, a lot of people criticize what Obama was doing as, oh, well, it's kind of an appeasement to the Cuban government. Um, however, the fact of the matter is if you go and talk to many of the Cubans there, and I had the chance to go last summer, um, actually last April after I left, and when you go and talk to various Cubans who have started their own businesses, they'll all tell you, like, they have more access to information than they had before. It's not enough. Uh, there's still a lot of limitations. There's still a lot that needs to be done. Um, and they have those frustrations. But I think, you know, um, both Ben and Obama, they were right in their approach of um, by kind of opening up relations, we're allowing them more access to freedom and to make their own decisions for their own countries. And we are empowering them in the process. And um, I remember last summer when I did leave the White House and, you know, it was getting a little difficult to hold on to hope. Uh, I got an email from a Cuban who was um, one of the individuals that really benefited from Obama advancing relations uh, with Cuba. And she said, you know, ever since I started my business, like, I've actually empowered other women. And the steps that are being taken right now to kind of reverse on these policies, at least verbally, she's like, you know, this will make our lives very challenging and will make what I've started a lot harder to achieve. She's like, however, Obama has given us a strength and a hope that nobody can take away from us and we're going to keep fighting for it. Um, and I think these are the impacts that are harder to measure, but are the ones that are most sustainable long-term. And I think, um, you know, kind of makes way for the most organic change and won't create hopefully, you know, any vacuums um, of, you know, more dictators and, and leaders like that. And, and I think it, the policy was antiquated, and it ignored one of the, the fundamental lessons of the Cold War was that engagement, yeah. you know, especially in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. you know, engagement helped contribute to the fall of communism in Europe. It was because we engaged. Yep. It was that personal connection. They're you know, giving them access to our products, to our media, and, and to our people. And um, exactly. you know, that one-on-one -on -one diplomacy. I mean, I benefited. Yeah. I, I went to Vietnam, actually, you know, before sanctions were lifted. Oh, wow. And, and I, I sat on a beach and had a long conversation with a, a former school teacher in the North who just told me how he believed communism had failed. 
And, you know, that mm-hmm. engagement is powerful. Exactly. And actually, two other points that I'll add to the engagement aspect. So I was the, I acted as the liaison to the Cuban-American community. Um, and I, I think that was important, too. It wasn't just engagement with the Cuban government and the Cuban people, but also with civil society, um, also with their media, also with the Cuban-American community, because all of them have a stake in what's been happening. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't get to sit in on the negotiations until uh, after Obama went. Um, uh, so when we were having the migration talks with them, I had the opportunity to sit in on a lot of the meetings with Ben. And um, I will never forget one of, among the last meetings, one of the words that kept coming up from our counterparts was this word dignity, that, you know, this was kind of the first time in history that these talks were able to have take place with so much dignity in the room. And that dignity is what allowed for us to talk about our, our severe differences. Um, and, you know, again, that comes with engagement, that comes with building a space for trust. Of course, it's not, it does not mean being naive to all the challenges and, um, and, you know, differences that we do have and things that we don't agree with that takes place in Cuba. But we were able to talk about those issues and, and push on those issues because there was a space of trust that was built. Um, and that did, comes with engagement. It doesn't come with just throwing a bunch of sanctions um, and attack, leaving it at just that. Did the attack on the, the kind of um, that strange, whether it was microwave attack on the embassy, did that occur um, while you were in the Obama administration or after? No, 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 no. The the sonar attack happened. Sonar, yes. Thank you. Gosh, I can't remember... Yeah, I can't remember when it happened, but it definitely was... Oh, you know what? Oh, it was either near the very end of the Obama administration. I feel like the first reports of it might have been at the end, but more of it, I think, was last summer. Um, what what, what was your reaction to that? It was kind of near the end. Um, honestly, I mean, look, there could be multiple possibilities. Um, you know, personally for me, I do feel like there was another actor in this. Um, I think the one thing that I learned in the process of, you know, watching Ben Rhodes have these negotiations is, um, you know, there are multiple positions within just the Cuban government. There were people who were very supportive and, and really wanted to see this historic shift happen and want wanted more engagement uh, with the U.S. of their neighbors. Um, but then there are a few who don't want it. My personal feeling is that, um, you know, obviously the U.S. and Cuba working closer together is a threat to other countries who have been very influential there. Um, you know, you know, Russia being historically just very present there as well. Um, and, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, I am doubtful um, that our counterparts who we have been working with would allow for such a thing to happen because it does um, risk everything that they had been working for with us. Um, for all these years and it just doesn't make sense and especially that they were so invested in it and I remember even when we were leaving they were still so eager to know who can we work with in the Trump administration I mean and before Trump won they were like well who will we be able to work with in the Clinton administration who would it be if Trump won they definitely always had a plan and were very invested in continuing these talks in continuing to find spaces um, to build up our relations and um, you know even after Trump did win they were constantly reaching out of like who do we talk to now like who can we um, and this was during the transition period Um, so I just never saw that I mean we never saw that level of um, them suddenly giving up on everything that they worked for and to pull back and do something like a sonar attack intentionally. However, again, like I mentioned, you know, I, I won't ignore the possibility that there are individual players who are against, um, you know, the advancement of U.S.-Cuba relations. But, I mean, I did find the whole thing disappointed. I think what I was most disappointed by uh, or frustrated by was the very quick reactions that was taken by our government um, in response to the sonar attacks, um, you know, but we don't really know the full details of everything that happened. True. Now, um, you mentioned your, your boss, Ben Rhodes, who, by the way, today is mm-hmm. his birthday. I don't know if you want to say happy birthday to yes, him. Yes, it is. It is his birthday. Happy birthday, Ben. <laughs> um, the, the benefits of Facebook. But the... He, yeah. along with some of the or your other colleagues, were featured in a, a doc, an amazing documentary called The Final Year. 
Are, are you in that film? Mm-hmm. I am in the background here and there. Um, yeah, you'll you'll see me throughout the movie. What what was your reaction to the movie when you saw it? So, first of all, I will say, as they were making the movie, um, uh, you know, they traveled with us to Cuba. They traveled with us to Laos, to Myanmar. And I remember when they were shooting it, we would all get, like, a little antsy because it was uncomfortable having filmmakers with you constantly uh, videotaping. Um, When I first saw the movie, you know, post-election, it was really hard. Um, I think my first time, I hated watching it, and I cried through most of it because it brought back a lot of uh, memories, but there were just a lot of just powerful, powerful scenes in the movie, one of them being, you know, Samantha Powers' speech um, at a naturalization ceremony. Yes. But the second time I watched it, since, you know, Ben and I actually were in New York for the um, the documentary uh, film festival that they were having, and we both spoke at the end of the movie, and um, watching it a second time, you know, as difficult as it is, I think what I'm most grateful for is that it exists um, as kind of an example and hopefully a source of hope for young people who want to pursue careers in foreign policy. And I think Obama's message at the end is so critical to be reminded of, which is that we have to remember that history goes in zigs and zags. zags, Um, You know, the pendulum is going to swing, but the pendulum has to swing back again. Um, And and we have to just work hard for it. And uh, the fact of the matter is when we compare where we are today, to what has happened historically. Like, yes, we are in a better place overall. Um, yes, there are a lot more new challenges that we are facing today that we may not have faced in the past. Um, but I think a combination of this movie as well as what I've reminded myself of is, you know, we have to remember that we're not the first people to go, first, you know, generation or people to go through this challenge. Um, you have the civil rights movement to look at. You have so many other, I mean, you have the Vietnam War to look at. Um, people have gone through much worse than we have and I think we need to remind ourselves not to feel so privileged um, and that we all have to as John Lewis says use our feet get in a little bit of trouble um, to make that change happen the change that we want for to see happen Um, and I feel like you know first of all it was the only documentary kind of made of Obama like filming filming him while he was there Um, so I'm really glad that this kind of historical piece exists and um, it does do a good job of I really appreciated how it showed quite openly, like, a lot of the discussions, debates that happened, you know, on Syria. That was a big one where there was major disagreements. And um, you need to have an administration where people are willing to challenge you and and have a different perspective from you to kind of hold you accountable and make sure that we're taking everything into consideration. Um, So I'm, you know, it was incredible. Mm -hmm. the, The closing kind of scene with Obama well, near closing scene at Obama in at, at the I believe it was the Acropolis, um, mm-hmm, explaining mm-hmm. the whole that notion that history zigs and zags, and that ultimately yep. you know it bends towards justice, and you know mm-hmm. that putting it in context that 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 sense of hope, and confidence mm-hmm. that you know the American, um, that we will endure we, and our values will survive. Mm-hmm. But we're going to take a short break. We come back. We're going to um, hear more on West Wingers after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents the 2018 Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to www.iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is January 31st, 2019. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate. Of achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 2018 Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Go to www.iacaward.org now. 
Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact B-R-A-S-C-O at WMR.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email B-R-A-S-C-O at WMR.fm. Radio's Virtual Autobahn. WebmasterRadio.fm. Moving at the speed of light. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back and we're, we're talking with Rumana Ahmed. She's one of the 18 contributors to West Wingers. Stories from the dream chasers, change makers, and hope creators inside the Obama White House. And Rumana had a notable article in 2017 in the Atlantic where uh, I, I think she broke Anthony Scaramucci's record. Um, she lasted an entire eight days in the Trump administration. And the, the piece in the Atlantic is, um, I was a Muslim in Trump's White House. And uh, so tell us about um, the transition and your, your, your glorious eight days in the Trump administration. Yeah, so one of the things that I actually did um, before the transition took place is I actually moved out of the West Wing into the Eisenhower building um, because the office had actually moved there. Uh, Yes, a very beautiful building. And um, to be very honest, even if no one wants to believe me on this, but a few of my colleagues and I who were allowed to stay, so I technically was on a two-year renewal, so I could have stayed until June 2018. Um, But a few of my colleagues and I, uh, one of them being one of the individuals who also worked on the uh, U.S.-Cuba relations, um, we both actually decided to stay through April or May of last year. That was our goal point. Um, And my intention was to, on two things, one was, since I own the like kind of the Rolodex of all of our Cuban contacts, and you know that includes our private sector companies that we are working with, our Cuban Americans, um, I did hope to be a resource on that front. Uh, my hope was that they would at least um, be interested in continuing to advance relations with Cuba, and I was happy to support on that front. Um, I, one thing I forgot to mention earlier, and I don't remember if I mentioned this in the book, I don't think I did, is uh, politics have never mattered in my family. My father, in fact, uh, registered as a Republican. My mom is a Democrat. So for me, it was more about the issues that we were working on. Um, and then the second thing that I did stay for was, was, you know, I know he had talked about the Muslim travel ban, and while I personally wasn't supportive of it, um, I do believe in the importance of communicating um, uh, what we're going to do and, and owing it to the American people to make sure that they're fully aware of what we're doing before we do it. And um, my hope was, you know, and we did this around the migration policies around Cuba when we repealed wet foot, dry foot. We made sure that we had a full rollout and communications plan to make sure that there was no confusion at confusion at airports and to make sure that Cubans, you know, understood what this policy meant for them. Um, so my hope was to play that role as well. Um, in any case, you know, uh, I ended up lasting only eight days, and there was multiple factors that influenced my decision to leave. Um, and one was the fact that all of a sudden, you know, first of all, you had all these executive orders that were just being signed and going out, um, and, and it didn't go through any process across agencies or within departments um, uh, for, you know, input by experts on these issues. Uh, and that was terrifying. Um, and then you had all these offices that were left empty. Like if you walk through the Eisenhower building, a lot of these offices were left empty. Um, the chaos, the process just became chaotic. A lot of the folks who were there from like the Reagan administration were even just shocked. They're like, this is crazy. We've never dealt with anything like it. Um, there was no coordination. There was no process. Every decision was now being made just within a core group of people within the West Wing. And in fact, 
in my office where I was sitting, you know, Michael Anton was there, um, and there was actually a few Trump appointees there, and even they were frustrated. They were like, well, we don't know what's going on. Like, we're finding things out by hearing it on the news. Um, all the press all of a sudden started calling my number because they remembered my number from the Obama administration, <laughs> and they were like, no one's picking up in the press office. Like, who do we talk to? And I was like, well, not me. You know, I'm not the press person. Um and then the other thing was, you know, I talk about this in the article where you just felt a very difference, uh, a big difference in the vibe of the place. Um, you know, I think one of the things that stood out to me was there was more staffers, like in military uniform. And I think it was maybe only on the early days that they were wearing, like coming to work with their uniforms on. Um, you know, and the travel ban, of course, was, I think, a big one personally for me. But, you know, there was... One other thing that also happened um, that I think was the moment that I decided, like, I can't be here. And I, and I think, for me, the differentiating factor was that I am no longer in a position to be able to even have an impact. You know, before, it's like, I had someone like Ben Rhodes who, even if we had differences of opinions, like, he was always open to listen, and he was someone that I could voice my concerns to. Um, that typical hierarchy of where you tell your boss and your boss will be able to bring it up at a meeting, well, there was no such structure anymore. Um, the senior leadership within our office were powerless. They had no position at the table. And so I think at that moment, it was a combination of just seeing all these executive orders being passed, um, the fact that it was all being done without any expert consultation. And you know, how I'll say it because I said in the article, but it had a very authoritarian feel to how it was all happening. Um, and again, you know, in combination with the fact that I was no longer in a role to be able to even voice um, my concerns and nor could any of my colleagues. And so all of those together really influenced my decision to leave. And unfortunately, it ended up only being eight days, but I think we all remember very well what the very, you know, the first few weeks of the administration was like. I think everyone was in shock. Um, and just, you know, being at the White House and looking at my TV screen and looking at all these airports filled with people, um, uh, you know, just kind of marching, you know, it it was, you know, it, it was incredible. Um, it was surreal. I couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, and at that moment, I felt like I could be more effective going on the outside rather than just staying in there. Interesting. Yeah, I, I went to LAX that weekend. It was just, it was just an incredible time. Now we only have a few yeah. minutes left, and very briefly, how do you think history will remember President Obama? Say that again. How do you think history will remember President Obama? Or how will you remember President Obama? I think, yeah, I mean, I think um, how I will remember him will be very similar to how I think the world will remember him. And I think I say that as I'm 29 years old now. Um, and so for me, how he's remember, remembered is very relative. Um, I think it may not be as easily measured, but I think the influence and the impact that he's had on young people around the world is going to be his greatest legacy. Um, it's something that you can't measure as easily. Um, I do hope he's remembered for like the work that he's done on Cuba, the Paris Agreement, and all those factors, but I think his greatest legacy will be what we won't be able to see as easily, and that is the influence that he's had on people around the world. Um, I remember when we were in Vietnam and when we are in Laos, you see these young people stand up and share what he has meant to them, and I can say that for myself of what he's meant to me. Um, he's changed the way that I look at things. He's changed the way that I have defined my role in my society. Um, he has given people the impetus to fight for the things that they care about. Um, so I think that will be his greatest legacy. And again, we can't measure it as easily, but I think that's what's so powerful about the impact that he's had. And, and again, it's on world leaders too. I mean, people, even there are individuals in the Cuban government that we know just admire him so deeply um, and, and have shifted their perspectives. But this is, you know, around the world uh, that I think he's had this impact. And um, again, we won't be able to necessarily pinpoint it back to him, but I think with my own eyes, it's something that I've seen. And I know that's going to be his impact going down the road. Now we only have two minutes left. Um, if people want to follow you, what is the best way to do it? <laughs> You're somewhat Great invisible question, on social media. Chosen. Yeah. Well, this could be another whole longer conversation. And I know given the context of California, a lot of people may not agree with me. Um, so I am on Facebook and I am on Instagram. Um, I actually have chosen to limit um, how much I am on social media. I do feel like the challenge we are facing today is we are getting 
getting caught up of like being in this echo chamber, which is online. Sure. Um, we just get overwhelmed with all the information. And this goes back to my point earlier. And, um, you know, I'm actually at Harvard right now. And one of our professors here was telling me once, he's like, we're mobilizing given um, our platform on social media in skills that we've never done before, which is incredible and powerful. Um, but we haven't gotten past just you know, screaming our emotions and feelings and perspectives, um, which is, by the way, staying within our own circles. How much are we actually reaching out and being able to change people's minds who don't agree with us? Um, so personally for me, I've chosen not to um, join on Twitter. Uh, What's the best way change. to follow I mean, West Wingers um, so West Wingers, they do. They are on Twitter. Um, you can go to westwingers.com, and they have all the links there. Um, but, yeah, you know, Gautam Raghavan, he's also on Twitter. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we have a web- web- website. It's called westwingers.com. So you can Great. also go check that out. They have links um, for Instagram, for Twitter, and, and for everything for you to follow. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and good luck in Miami um, on Saturday. And, uh um, the book is West Wingers Stories from the Gene Chasers, Changemakers, and Hope Creators Inside the Obama White House. Join us next week for our annual Cyber Thanksgiving show. It's always a lot of fun. And until then, have a great week. Um, this is Ben and Kelly saying goodbye. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.